today on Sexually Woke with Dr. Susan. I'm so excited to be talking with Dr. Nishat Latib, who is certified through the Institute of Functional Medicine. She's also a good friend of mine, and we're going to be talking about detox, supplements, sleep, everything you've wanted to know about functional medicine, all kinds of exciting things. Hi, and thanks for joining us on this week's episode of Sexually Woke with me, Dr. Susan. And I'm so excited to be joined by a really good friend of mine, Dr. Nishat Latib. Hi, Nishat. Welcome. Hi. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Nishat and I go back a long time. Uh, She was just reminding me that I delivered all of her children, so this is aging me, but uh, she has (laughs) nine-year-old twins and then... And then a 10, almost 11-year-old. Oh, my gosh. So time flies. And some of you might know I have twins that are almost 17. So I'm not going to tell you what happens when that happens. When they go through <laughs> puberty, you'll find out on your own. Uh, but Nishat has made an amazing transition. Like, it's sort of similar to me, I guess, like finding out that, you know, the original field that we went into in medicine maybe wasn't uh, a zone of genius or what we were super excited about. Uh, she has over 20 years of experience as a board-certified emergency physician, and then in the recent few years has become one of the less than 1,000 doctors who are certified by the Institute of Functional Medicine. And I'm just so excited about what functional medicine is because I don't think most people even know. So can you can you tell us what that field is and like who might come to see you as a patient? Absolutely. Well, it's funny, having been in the emergency room for 20 plus years, I really feel like, especially after the pandemic, we are in this state of what I call a functional emergency, where all of us really need a total body reset and have such an immense amount of inflammation, not just from toxins and everyday life, but also from the amount of stress that we have all been under. So I think everyone needs a functional physician um, on their team, uh, helping them navigate their health. As for what functional medicine is, it's really different from traditional medicine. And the way I like to illustrate it is, you know, in traditional medicine and in the ER, I'm using an acute care model to create, to treat an acute disease. But in my opinion, where the traditional medical model falls short is that we're using an acute care model to treat chronic disease. Mm. And we're not really looking at the root cause of disease and trying to prevent and reverse disease. And that's exactly what we do in functional medicine is we are not a we're not treating based on a symptom. We're looking at a symptom as an expression of some sort of organic physiological process. And then we're dialing it back and trying to figure out the root cause. So to give a simple example for our listeners, if, it's, if somebody comes in with a high sugar in a traditional doctor's office, you might say, oh, you have diabetes and you get stamped with a label and told that you have to maybe be on insulin for the rest of your life. However, from a functional perspective, if you come in and you have high sugar, we go back and we say, okay, your body is expressing symptoms of hyperglycemia, which could eventually become diabetes. But let's try to reverse it. Let's try to figure out what is causing the high sugar. Let's fix it at the root cause so that you don't have to be on medication for the rest of your life. So the goal is to get people off medications and pharmaceuticals rather than on more medications. The goal is to reverse the aging process and to really dissect and peel back the root cause of disease. The other really fascinating thing that we do in functional medicine is is really look at epigenetics. So I always tell my patients that your genes are the gun, but your lifestyle choices and what you put in your mouth are the trigger. So 
our genes are not our destiny. They're rather just a roadmap. And if we can control what we put in our mouth, the choices that we make, we can actually keep genes and, in other words, genetic predispositions from turning on. Mm, that's it's so fascinating, isn't it? Because what I'm hearing is you and I both made a transition you know, in different paths where I sort of woke up halfway through my career and like, what are we doing? Just prescribing a drug to treat a symptom and another drug to treat the side effects of the first drug and spending 10 minutes with the patient. So we're not getting to the root cause, like you said. And so I think this is such an incredible shift away from what we're trained in traditional medical schools about treating sickness to instead taking a perspective of uh, maximizing wellness, which is a totally different lens to look through. But so much more helpful, I think, and and so much more satisfying as a provider too, isn't it? Because we're actually seeing people get well and stay well instead of just, you know, walking out the door with another prescription. Absolutely. I mean, traditional medicine is so transactional, right? I mean, it's seven-minute medicine, essentially. And we are, you know, we're basically given a roadmap for what is appropriate and not appropriate, and we're not really given the time that we need to really delve deep into somebody's history and really understand the root cause. I mean, I ask my patients whether they were bottle-fed or breastfed. I want to know if they were delivered vaginally or uh, via C-section because something simple thing like that affects our gut microbiome from the day that we land on this earth. Mm, it's so interesting. And this, what I'm hearing is, you know, functional medicine's very, correct me if I'm wrong, but very much centered on what we put in our mouth and how it affects our gut. Is that, is that true? And we, we know now in medicine, and I, I know very little, but you know all of this, about how vital our gut health is to every disease process, right? So is it really just about what we eat and what we consume or... I think that's definitely a huge part of it. A huge part of my practice in functional medicine is really centered on nutrition. But there's also a lot of mind-body work. We focus on movement. We focus on mindfulness. We focus on the powerful nature of meditation um, and really optimizing our parasympathetic state because, as we know, we all— if you know, when you're under stress, you know, you end up being in a catabolic state, which means that you are breaking things down in your body. And we really want to get our bodies to a place where we can live in an anabolic state where we're building things in our body. And we can do that by entering a parasympathetic mode. So I think it's about nutrition. It's about movement. It's about mindfulness. And with mindfulness comes the ability to manage the stress that is just, you know, a fact of in life. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so for those of you who don't know what the parasympathetic system is, and we can turn this on just as simply as by taking two or three really deep breaths, which is, um, you know, for many meditation practices, breathing is sort of one of the central tenets. And you can see patients actually lower their heart rate and blood pressure, which is what happens when our parasympathetic system kicks in, the opposite of that, you know, fight, flight, stress cycle that we can get in, right? You know, I actually came to see you as a patient last year. You know, COVID, I remember in March, was so stressful. And I think I was drinking a bottle of wine every day, like many of us, and just had fallen into some really unhealthy habits. And uh, so Nishad helped me and gave me a detox program, which I had never done before. Uh, so what's the point of doing a detox program? And like, why would somebody want to do that? And, and talk to us a little bit about what that means, because there's a lot of programs out there, let's just say, and some of them are more valuable than others, but yours was really transformational and I've recommended it to so many of my patients. So what's actually happening when we do a detox? Can you walk us through it? Yeah, that's a great question. 
Well, the detoxification process is critical, right? I mean, we, I think we just need to start from the basics, the fact that we live in a toxic world. Just the act of getting up and getting ready in the morning, most of us are exposed to 200 to 300 different chemicals without even leaving our house, mm. which is kind of hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah, like in just in the products that we're using and the yes. air that we're breathing. Mm-hmm. It's in our Car products. Car exhaust. Non-stick pans, um, emissions from furniture. You know, for any of our listeners that have young kids like me, everybody wants, you know, furniture that won't stain. Guess what? The non-staining surface that's on that fabric is actually toxic. You know, there are toxins in our water supply, the glyphosates from, you know, of course, the ever-so-famous Roundup. And so our bodies are constantly accosted, you know, as as time has evolved and technology has evolved, we are constantly accosted with toxins. And what happens is that our toxic world basically causes our body to, on a metabolically and cellular level, not work as efficiently. And so things just don't work as well. And so the point of detoxification is basically to rev up the liver. And I always think of the liver as your laundromat, okay? Mm-hmm. So it basically takes your your fat-soluble toxins that are hiding all over your body, puts it through the little laundromat, and spits them out as water-soluble. And then we get rid of our toxins that are water-soluble in one of a few ways, through our breath, through sweat, through urination, and through defecation. So by revving up your laundromat, you're basically able to pull toxins that have maybe been sitting in your body for who knows how long if you've never done a detox and able to biotransform them into something your body can easily eliminate. And the amazing thing is that You know, when you go through a detox, because all of your cells start working at a much more efficient level, you experience amazing transformations like more energy, right? Because all of a sudden your mitochondria are working better. You're decreasing inflammation. So your whole HPA axis and your cortisol levels, which is your stress hormone, starts to level out. Um, Maybe if you have imbalanced hormones, you're also able to take hormones and get rid of them from your body very efficiently. Now, that was an interesting point, actually, um, just to jump in, because there's so much exciting material there. But for uh, perimenopausal women, which is a huge uh, population that that I help to take care of along with you, our hormones are are very widely fluctuating. Our estrogen can be extremely high and then dip down to quite low. And so you have found, working with my patients, and I've certainly heard this feedback, that uh, a lot of their symptoms get dramatically better. So it's, it's fascinating how hormones work along with this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the ability to biotransform and eliminate, you know, a large part of our estrogen metabolism actually happens in our gut. And so by decreasing inflammation, we actually start to heal the gut wall, which makes those bacteria work more efficiently, which is one of the reasons they can metabolize, you know, any excess estrogen or imbalanced hormones efficiently and get them out of our body. So what what does a detox program look like? What would somebody go through if they said, hey, they called you up and came to visit you at your office and walk us through what that would be like? Absolutely. So it's right now the way I like to do it is a four-week period. I mean, we can do anything for four weeks, right? (laughs) I did it. I did it for four weeks. And I'll tell you my story a little bit later. But yeah, you you feel great. And actually, I've I've never actually given it up. It, It was over a year ago. I've eliminated a lot of those things permanently or at least cut them down to 
so low because you just, I don't want to feel that bad again. So yeah, I've heard that from a lot of people. So four weeks of full on, and then you may adopt some of those habits long-term, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's the whole philosophy, right? So my detox is very different than probably most of the detoxes out there. It's not a fast. It's not about deprivation. You're eating food. And actually, it's not calorie restricted at all. Um, In fact, probably the biggest complaint I get, ironically, is that people cannot finish all the food that I want them to eat. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So I figure that's a pretty good problem to have. And so essentially, the first week is my pre-cleanse week. It's just food where all they're doing is eating according to my plan. And the food plan, by the way, is very strategically and intentionally designed to eliminate what I call the high-fi foods, which are the highly inflammatory foods. And based on the scientific research, more than 90% of the population has a sensitivity or intolerance to one of these foods. And those foods include gluten, dairy, soy, peanuts, artificial sweeteners, uh, sometimes eggs, and caffeine and alcohol. Uh, Caffeine and alcohol, you know, are are not considered a high-fi food, but the reality is that they are highly inflammatory, and caffeine disrupts our you know, circadian rhythm and our, and causes cortisol imbalances, which again is our stress hormone. So it's really important to eliminate it. And there's a lot of people that look at me with like, I have six heads when I tell them they have to eliminate caffeine and alcohol for four whole weeks. Um, but I always promise them that they will be grateful that they did and to trust the process. But anyway, going back, the first week is a pre-cleanse. And then the next two weeks of that are food shakes and supplements. And I'll come back in a minute and tell you how the supplements and shakes were designed physiologically to support the liver. And the fourth week is a post-cleanse week where we go back to food. But the idea is that people can learn to eat this way forever because the food is delicious. It's filling. It's nutrient-rich. And there's nothing processed in it. It's all whole foods. And so, you know, while they're going through the program, I'm also teaching them about sleep. We're learning about meditation. We're learning about, you know, perimeter shopping at the grocery store and the benefits of eating seasonally because all of these things really empower our cells and our physiology to perform at their absolute best, which in the big picture is going to prevent chronic disease and possibly even reverse disease. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. I, so when I was given this list, so you, we did this um probably in May of last year, maybe it was close to 18 months ago now, because it was right after the, you know, the really scary beginning of COVID when we were all wondering if the world was going to end and stress levels were incredibly high for everybody, including your physicians like me. And when I heard that list, it sounded too hard to do. I'm like, well, what, what else is there to eat? And I'm also vegetarian. So I'm like, well, what else is there to eat? But very quickly, I realized there were so many things you can eat and just to change the focus to what you can eat. And you're right. Like, I could eat whenever I was hungry. So there wasn't any hunger involved. And actually, since going through that, I've been, you know, apart from occasional trips to Italy or France, gluten and dairy free um, because I just feel so much better. So I don't think of it like somebody might if they had a true allergy, but I I just look at those things and I don't want to consume them anymore because I know I'm going to get gassy. My stomach will be upset. I don't have a desire to have them anymore. Isn't it amazing? And not that I, you know, I did go to France and I ate bread and cheese for a week. I didn't feel good. So, you know, I learned again, you know, okay, this isn't something that works for my system. So when we talk about inflammatory foods, and most of us have heard lots of talk about that now, what is the inflammation? What's being inflamed and what are we trying to reverse? What's happening inside our body? 
Yeah. So there's three types of immune reactions, right? And I think most people understand a reaction as like a true anaphylactic or allergic reaction where we're getting hives or, you know, itching or our throat is closing. And the reality is that there are three types of immunological reactions that can happen in the body. And the food sensitivity and intolerance, both of those are mediated by a different type of antibody. And so they're a lot more subtle, right? So you could get inflammation in your gut wall, for instance, from it, and it might, or you could get, you know, gassy from it. There's a lot of different things that can happen in your body that are truly, truly so subtle on a cellular level, but they can manifest as nausea. They can manifest as a headache. I've sometimes, you know, seen it manifest as eczema. Um, I had a patient um, who had a sensitivity to gluten and as soon as she got off it, she had a psoriatic arthritis, so basically joint pain that all of a sudden went away. Mm. So it can manifest in so many different ways um, that that's why it's so under the radar. Right? Yeah. So so I had um, I didn't notice my symptoms, and you might have heard this one many times, but dairy makes me produce a lot of saliva so that I'm like <clears throat> like clearing my throat. And so now I notice it immediately if I have something, like if I put some, I usually have non-dairy milk, but if I don't have any and I put some, a little bit of milk in my tea, I'm clearing my throat, mucousy. So like really subtle, but something's not working properly in my body. And that just, it's an amazing little thing. And I was gassy too with gluten. I mean, not a not a huge deal, but it's really nice not to be gassy and have a flat stomach and not feel your stomach rumbling all day long. Uh, so some of these things can be pretty subtle and some can be massive, like a lot of um, patients that you and I have both seen who have been diagnosed with very severe autoimmune diseases and are put on you know, chemotherapeutic agents, for example, to treat yeah. RA, rheumatoid arthritis or something like that. And not infrequently, they just need to change their diet. Well, that's a that's a great point that you brought up because actually um, patients with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, a lot of them, it really comes down to a gluten intolerance. And they did a study. I can't remember what year it was, but there was an amazing study with, that they did. And they put, um, they looked at all these patients with Hashimoto's thyroiditis and they put half of the group on a pretty much a standard American diet. And they put the other half of the group on a gluten-free diet. And by 90 days, more than 90% of the patients with Hashimoto's thyroiditis had reversed their disease. And that's so amazing, isn't it? So those of you, most everybody's heard of Hashimoto's. We have an antibody that we produce in our own system that attacks our thyroid gland, and it's the most common reason to have low thyroid. And we check that antibody in every single patient in my office. And I think about 50% of women over 50 have some level of this antibody. It's incredibly common. So common that I think it just makes sense that we don't eat gluten. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to scare you, but I mean, it just makes sense. I have a low level of that antibody myself. Yeah, absolutely. And my thyroid's functioning well, but, you know, it's not going to last forever, especially if I don't watch what I'm eating. Yeah. Well, it also has to do with the way that wheat is actually processed in this country. So there are some parts of the world where gluten is, you know, grown and processed the way it should be, and it's not as problematic. But unfortunately, at least in most of the Western uh, societies and, you know, industrialized communities, 
gluten is a problem because of the way it's processed. Uh, it has created almost like a pandemic of sensitivity uh, across our population. So that is one of the reasons that it's completely eliminated in the detox program. And, you know, I also tell my patients that you know, you're not going to be sensitive to all of these foods. Like I said, of all the high five foods that we eliminate, more than 90% of the population is sensitive to one or more. So when I'm working with patients one-on-one, -on -one, what we'll do is we'll go off everything for a period of time, and then we'll add things back in a very controlled way so that we can really dial it in and figure out what the problem is so that people aren't living in this state of, you know, feeling deprived. But you nailed it earlier when you said we really have to shift our mindset, right? From, from a mindset of of, you know, scarcity and depletion to more just shifting your mindset to a positive mindset where we're really looking at replacing things because we're not really depriving anybody of anything. We're really just replacing it with things that are better for us. Yeah. And you'd feel so much better at first, the fear of giving things up. You know, I think anybody who's looking at a detox program, it, it sounds a little scary. Like I'm going to suffer. I'm, I'm going to struggle. I won't be able to have the things that I like. But my experience was after, well, it took about 72 hours for my body to stop, you know, fighting this uh, way of being um, and then just started feeling great. So do you find people like, like my experience was the first couple of days, you know, didn't feel good because your toxin levels are going up pretty high. Is that correct? Like as the stuff's being expressed from your system? Exactly. Exactly. Especially if, and if someone hasn't done something like this before, it's a huge change. And that's why we do a week of easing into the program before we start on the shakes. This might be a good time to kind of talk about the shakes and the supplements and what they actually yeah. do. So there's two phases to your laundromat function, okay? There's a phase one and phase two. Um, I kind of like to think of it as the wash and the spin, okay? So during the washing period, uh, the shake really upregulates the washing period. And in, in the shake, is it's packed with vitamins, minerals, and nutrients, and everything needed for phase one of the detoxification process in the liver. It also has things like milk thistle in it and, um, you know, other natural herbs that really support our liver health. Phase two, which is the spin, is supported by amino acids. So my supplements that go with the shakes are really an assortment of really powerful amino acids that support phase two of the detoxification process. And there's also a digestive enzyme in there because many of my patients coming to this program have some sort of gut dysfunction or dysbiosis or imbalance and or maybe even have symptoms like GERD, um, which that's a whole other topic we could talk about on mm. another podcast, what really GERD is. But a digestive enzyme just ensures that we are able to break down everything, that all the goodness and powerful nutrients in the shake and actually absorb them. The problem when you don't support, you know, the wash and the spin, just like in your laundromat, right, you can't do one without the other. The problem is if we stop after the wash and we don't spin, the intermediate in that process in the liver is a toxic metabolite, which causes more inflammation. So it's really important what people do to my detox, that they take the shake and the supplement at the same time exactly for that reason, so that we're really pushing everything through. And a little side note that actually will make our listeners really happy because they're probably like, oh my gosh, this sounds crazy to do this for four weeks. But a side effect of my detox is that most of my patients, actually all of my patients will end up losing, except for those that don't have any weight to lose, will end up losing seven to 13 pounds. And everyone's like, well, this isn't a weight loss program. I said, no, it's absolutely not a weight loss program. However, we store toxins in fat and our body is amazingly, amazingly smart so that as soon as your body starts clearing those toxins from the fat, the fat on your body is like, oh, 
I don't really need to be here anymore because I don't need to hide these bad toxins anymore. And so your body all of a sudden starts releasing fat mm. and dropping weight. It is amazing. That's so interesting because there's so many women, every woman that I meet, let's just say, experiences this difficulty losing weight and much more easy to gain weight as we get into our 40s. And we know there's so many reasons for that that we've talked about uh, on this podcast before. But that's fascinating that our body really just is trying to help us by storing these toxins in a way that gets the toxins further away from our vital organs. I mean, we have this incredible intelligence that's being deployed, but what's causing is us to get fat. So I, th I just think that's fascinating. Um, you know, with high cortisol and a bunch of toxins, our bodies are in fat storage mode to try to protect us. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So if we can release the toxins, if we can optimize our sleep, if we can, you know, decrease our stress levels, and we can't control the stress around us, but I tell my patients, you can control your reaction to stress, right? And so by doing all of that, the amazing thing is that we decrease inflammation and we can like push ourselves into fat burning mode, you know, and get rid of those unwanted pockets that, you know, maybe have been plaguing us for a long time. It is so fascinating that things like, and talk a little bit about sleep, because that was a huge problem for me when I was perimenopausal. And many of our patients list that as their number one complaint in perimenopause is uh, hormone related insomnia, which as we know, elevates our cortisol, elevates our stress, and is one of the reasons why we get fat around the middle. But it's so critical to sleep well, isn't it? And then we're feeding the tiredness with caffeine and creating a vicious cycle. So as a former caffeine addict, I can tell you when I started this detox plan, I was full of alcohol and caffeine, and it was challenging for a couple of days, but my sleep got so much better. And so I had, like many people, rationalize that, oh, I'll only drink coffee before noon and then it'll be out of my system. But that's really not true, is it? No, it's amazing. And, you know, speaking of, you know, metabolism of caffeine, you know, all of us are genetically programmed to metabolize caffeine in different ways. So some of us, I'm actually a very slow caffeine metabolizer. So if I drink any caffeine after 9 a.m., it definitely affects my sleep. I don't feel the benefits of it. I don't feel more energetic in the afternoon. In fact, I've been at my low, you know, when I was in complete adrenal fatigue, I was exhausted in the afternoon. So it wasn't like the caffeine was lingering on. But when I went back and looked at my genetics, I realized, oh, I'm a slow metabolizer. So yeah, sleep is essential. I say, you know, my kind of hard rule is really no caffeine after 1 p.m. And I like to minimize caffeine, if not eliminate it. In fact, like you, most of my patients who have gone on the detox actually never go back to caffeine because they feel more energetic without it, which seems so counterintuitive. But it's because we have reset our hormone cycle. You know, we have learned the skills to regulate our cortisol and stress levels. And as a result, our diurnal cortisol rhythm, which is our stress level rhythm, and our stress level, you know, for our listeners, just so you guys understand what I'm talking about, cortisol is really equivalent to how much energy you feel like you have throughout the day. So when you wake up in the morning, you should have kind of like a mid-level of cortisol. Within 30 minutes, it should about double. Comes down slowly until the afternoon, and then you're kind of slow, slow, slow decline tonight. And so if your levels are right, you shouldn't have any trouble going to sleep. The ideal window, by the way, to go to sleep is between, you know, 9 and 10 p.m., really not past 10.30 p.m. And most women, the 
guidelines say seven to nine hours, but I like to tell my patients eight to nine hours because not everybody falls asleep right away. So you really want to make sure that you're in bed closer to nine or 10 hours to make sure that you're getting your eight to nine hours of sleep. And it's not just being in bed and sleeping, but as you know, and you've seen with your patients, it's the quality of sleep that really matters Mm. because many of us will go to sleep and be like, well, I slept eight hours, but I still feel exhausted in the morning. So making sure that you are getting into, you know, latency and deep sleep and REM sleep and all the different stages of sleep is really critical. I personally wear an aura ring, which helps me monitor all of that. And that's what our patients at Sydenham Clinic get as a part of their membership, because I really want to understand how well they're sleeping um, and how many times they're waking up at night. And hormones, of course, play a huge role in that, too. Yeah. Another thing um, is alcohol. So um, I do like to drink wine. Uh, But as many of us have found, our ability to manage alcohol changes with age. And so I was initially disappointed to have to really just own that, that I can't drink wine like I used to at night because it will affect my sleep. If I, you know, have more than one glass of wine, I'm going to wake up at about two o'clock in the morning, right about when the alcohol's worn off and I'm wide awake and can't go back to sleep. So now I sort of look at that glass of wine and doesn't sound like such a great idea. Or maybe I found my own limit is about one glass. But one thing that you shared with me was how important it is to choose wines that are low in sulfites and some of the other, I guess I shouldn't call them toxins, but some of the other compounds that are in most wines that can affect our sleep. So, you know, you give up alcohol altogether for four weeks, but if you do choose to add it back in, there are ways to add alcohol that are less harmful than others, right? Because a lot of our listeners like me, we don't want to give it up altogether. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I only drink clean crafted wines myself. The unfortunate thing in in most traditional wines is that, you know, usually a traditional bottle of wine probably has the amount of sugar as a donut Mm. added to each bottle, which is crazy. I mean, you're talking probably 16 to 32 grams of sugar um, and four grams is one teaspoon. So you're talking about four to eight teaspoons of sugar being added to each bottle, which is a lot. Um, They also, you know, a lot of times traditional wines, they'll add enzymes so that they can ferment them faster. They'll add color, things like mega purple to it. They'll add ferrocyanides. And in red wines, there's sulfites, right, which is an antibacterial substance. So in traditional bottles of wine, you might have 300 plus grams of sulfites, whereas in clean crafted wine, you're usually looking at less than 50. I personally had migraines for a large period of my life, and I couldn't drink red wine at all until I discovered clean crafted wine, and I felt completely different. And clean crafted wine is essentially organic. You're getting them from a small vineyards. The grapes are hand-picked. There's no pesticides or chemicals, and they're kind of made the good old-fashioned way that wine was made maybe centuries ago. And that that makes such a difference. I actually started drinking some of these wines that you can share with the listeners uh, some of the sources that you have, that I don't have the headache, I don't have the hangover, I don't wake up at two o'clock in the morning, then I can still enjoy my glass of wine. So can you share what some of the sources are? You can't just go to, you know, H-E-B and find these. Um, It takes a little bit of work. Yeah, absolutely. So there's two places that I order from. One of them is Scout and Cellar Wines, and the other one is Dry Farm Wines. And we can definitely put a link in the show notes if any of our listeners are interested in that. Um, but I find that they're mail order, but it's it's really great. You can order them kind of whenever you want. I order them in batches and I kind of just already have them in the house on hand so that when uh, people come over, you know, we can serve them clean crafted wine. But yeah, it's it makes a huge difference. Yeah, that's a huge change for many of us to adopt that will transform your sleep, uh, either yeah. giving up or changing the way you 
have a relationship with alcohol. So other than wine, and obviously I'm very interested in alcohol, so I'm going to ask you a few more <laughs> questions about it. What are some of the other ways that listeners could consume a little bit of alcohol to satisfy their desires and not put themselves at some of the harm that comes with these more toxic varieties? Yeah, absolutely. So vodka, I mean, the key with vodka is to basically find a non-starch-based vodka. So something like Tito's um, is a good one. And, you know, tequila or mezcal are also really great options. Um, Tequila and mezcal are probably your best options in terms of making sure that you don't have um, a surge in insulin, which is going to interrupt sleep if you have something that's got a lot of sugar or carbohydrates in it. So, you know, something like a tequila or mezcal with a little bit of soda and lime juice, um, add a couple of stevia drops to it if you need something a little sweet in there does the trick and, you know, it's probably the least insulting drink you could have before bedtime. <laughs> yeah, that's some good good news right there. So yeah. we can still have a little bit. Um, <laughs> everyone wants to know about that. So uh, I'll give my other tips on sleep real please. quick. My other tips are, you know, the one thing that people don't really think about is how much we look at our phones. You know, blue light is horrible for our circadian rhythm. And so with my patients, my hard rule is no blue light an hour before bedtime. That includes sleep, computer, phones, ideally three hours if possible. And if you absolutely have to do it, which I know some of us for work or for family reasons need to be able to partake in those activities, all you have to do is buy yourself a pair of blue light glasses. I mean, they're like 20 bucks on Amazon and you can block that light because what that light does is it signals to your brain that you're awake. And so it completely disrupts our circadian rhythm and will make it a lot harder for us to fall asleep. My other kind of hard rules are no eating three hours before bedtime and also the establishment of some sort of bedtime routine, whether it's, you know, a warm cup of like non-caffeinated herbal tea or, you know, meditation or whatever it might be. Some, some of my patients like to do a bath. There's so many different ways that you can establish an evening routine so that your brain starts to be able to have the cue. Okay, it's time to go to bed. It's so important. And so you and I both grew up in this culture as physicians. I was delivering babies. You're in the emergency room working all kinds of crazy hours that was sort of a sleep when you die mentality. There was almost a value system placed on people who could sleep the least. We would brag about it. Oh, I stayed up. I stayed up all night and delivered six babies and I've been awake for 48 hours. It was almost a badge of honor. And it's so unhealthy. And these are physicians. So it's such a change to make sleep sacred time rather than, you know, I grew up where you would sleep when you ran out of other things to do. Like you'd work late, get up early, maybe sleep a little bit in the middle, maybe not even sleep, depending on what was going on at work. But there was no value placed on sleep as a sacred time. And it's just transformational, those of you who don't sleep, when you start to sleep for eight hours a night. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for other listeners that are vegetarians, like Dr. Susan, the cool benefit of being a vegetarian, which is something that, you know, my patients who are vegetarians are always really happy to hear, is that if you eat, for instance, a complex carb dinner with no, you know, animal protein, it lowers your cortisol, by the way, and it puts you into a state where you can produce melatonin. And so your melatonin level goes up. Well, of course, our hormone, which is, you know, our sleep hormone makes us sleep really, really well. And it also stimulates human growth hormone production at night. So those of you who are vegetarians who can rock a complex carb dinner, that'll be a home run for your sleep. Well, that is exciting. I didn't even know that. So I... <laughs> 
I've been getting all this benefit all this time. That's wonderful. <laughs> Speaking of which, do you recommend a plant-based diet or, you know, most people eat meat? And what are your thoughts about that? You know what? I think it's so personal. I I don't have a hard rule one way or the other, um, but I will tell you that the complex carb dinner is definitely something that I root for um, in a lot of my patients, especially the ones that are struggling with sleep, the ones that are struggling with uh, some form of adrenal fatigue um, or dysfunction, which is basically our cortisol and stress hormone level dysfunction if that level is not healthy. A complex carb dinner, you know, only eating Things like lentils and vegetables and, you know, quinoa for dinner will go a long way. So I'm a big supporter of a vegetarian dinner. Um, I think if you're going to have your animal protein, it's best to have it for breakfast and lunch just because animal protein uh, does increase your cortisol level. And we don't really want that to happen at night. So, you know, all these people that are programmed to think they need to have a heavy steak dinner. It's actually doing a number on your body and on your sleep because it's stimulating that cortisol surge in the mm. evening. Yeah, especially if you're doing it with a couple of glasses of traditionally uh, manufactured wine. It's amazing that we're getting any sleep at all. I know. Um, <laughs> so this is this is a, a really great thing to consider. So if if patients wanted to do your detox program, you're at this amazing new clinic, and I want you to tell us a little bit about the Sydenham Clinic. It's such a revolutionary way to offer medical care to patients. And so can you introduce us just a little bit to what happens there and, and then how they could find you to do this program? Yeah, absolutely. So Sydenham Clinic is a magical, magical place. It pretty much sums up my belief system of the best way to practice medicine. Uh, it's a very holistic and comprehensive approach to health uh, where we are really looking at the full gamut. Um, we are doing everything from an executive physical there to balancing hormones, nutrient optimization. We look at the gut. We look at sleep. Everybody gets an aura ring. Everybody gets a personal nutritionist who's functionally trained. Um, we do a lot of advanced testing uh, that actually is not even recognized by insurance. These are functional lab tests, which I think is a really important thing to, to help our listeners understand is that your traditional labs really just look at a level of something in your blood, whereas a functional test looks at how well they're working, mm. right? So if you have a bunch of thyroid hormone that looks like a normal level swimming around in your blood and everything looks great, and your traditional doctor might tell you that you're, you're looking Fine, great, you're right? normal, but you're cold all the time, you're losing your hair, Maybe you're gaining weight and just can't get it off. Clinically, you're hypothyroid, right? So what functional tests will do is not just look at the thyroid level, for instance, but are those thyroid hormones fitting into the locks and turning the key and making things work the way they're supposed to work? So that's just a little illustration of the difference between understanding what a functional lab is versus a traditional lab. So we do all functional labs. The other really powerful thing we do at Sydney Clinic is for genetics. So we look at 800 different genetic variations in 33 different areas. So we look at everything from your genetics of how you might process um, an anesthetic to cardiovascular disease, to your predisposition for neurodegenerative disease and Alzheimer's, clotting, I mean, you name it, estrogen metabolism, we kind of look at it all. And the program is really based on 
you know, creating a personalized treatment plan to help our patients optimize their health and achieve their health goals. It's different because it's a collaborative approach to medicine, too. Uh, That's the other difference between functional medicine. It's really a relationship. It's not me telling my patients, okay, you need to do X, Y, and Z. It's about me understanding what their goals are and helping them achieve their goals and meeting them where they are. So it's an amazing place. And I have my detox program there. So Sydenham Clinic, we'll make sure we put the link below. They've got a beautiful website. You can see all of the services that are offered. And it's right here in Houston. Um, I just think it's a, such a revolutionary way to approach wellness. And I'm so excited about what you guys are doing. Yeah, what we do, we do primary care there too. So, and it's concierge care. So, you know, if patients, if any of you listeners are looking for, you know, a place where you can get primary care and concierge care and kind of have it all wrapped up in one, we are the place to be. Yeah, that's such a a great service. You know, we used to have to go to a beautiful spa week in Arizona or something like that, but now you don't have to do that. You can just go here in Houston and get the same type of thing that you would get if you went away for a week and got locked away from the rest of the world, which is also a great thing to do, but it's not always (laughs) practical. So um, I know we're almost at the end of your time, but I have one question that so many people ask uh, which is like, what supplements do we need to take? I I have patients coming in with a whole basket of supplements and they don't know why they're on any of them. And then other patients who are on none and believe they can get everything from food. What's your opinion about the truth in, in that range? Okay. Well, I have lots of things to say about that. First and foremost, The ideal way to get everything is from food. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, the food that we have available to us is just not nutrient-dense the way it used to be in the good old days. Um, Most of us are not eating seasonally anymore. And if you think about it, if you try to make a plant grow out of season, it's just not going to be as healthy and happy, right? That also means that it's not going to be as nutrient-dense. So if we are eating seasonally, that's one of my best tips to my patients to try to maintain, you know, as much of your nutrient proportion from food rather than from supplements. Um, I love getting it that way. But like I said, unfortunately, our food that is available to us is really not as nutrient-dense as I would like it. I do encourage everyone to go to farmer's markets on the weekends uh, because that's a great place to get locally sourced seasonal food. That is probably going to be your most nutrient-dense option. And of course, I referred to this earlier, but perimeter shopping and sticking to whole foods um, and not processed foods. As far as supplement quality, I think that's another thing that's really poorly misunderstood. Unfortunately, the supplement industry is not very well regulated. And it's not like the pharmaceutical industry uh, where there are all sorts of checks and balances to make sure that medications, you know, meet each of the various standards before they are put out on the market. In the supplement industry, it's very different. And so my biggest plea to my patients is to make sure that they're getting pharmaceutical-grade supplements because those are the only ones that we really know are as strong and uh, really have what they say that they have on the label. A lot of people think that they can get something cheaper on Amazon, uh, but also the other reality is that Amazon has stuff sitting on pallets, mm, you know, in the right. sun variations in temperature uh, often cause a degradation of the ingredients and contents in a given supplement. So my biggest advice is if you are going to be on supplements, source them from, you know, your medical provider or from a pharmaceutical grade company, which most of the time is only available through a health professional. So that's one way to get as far as supplement quality. As far as what supplements you should be on, I'm a real believer of 
of really phasing out supplement plans. And my approach to supplement plans is to really treat patients on a system-based regimen based on their needs. So for instance, somebody might be on adrenal protocol for a few months, and then when they're done with that, we stop all that and we go on a gut protocol. But if you're not under the care of a functional medicine provider and you kind of want to know the basics, most everyone is low on vitamin D. So I think that's a really easy one. Another trick, by the way, for sleep every morning is to go out and get 15 minutes of full-spectrum light. Just walk outside and Find a spot of sun or even just sitting outside, being outside for 15 minutes in the sun will cause a big boost in your vitamin D. So that's a great way to to regulate your circadian rhythm and get a boost of vitamin D. A vitamin D supplement is definitely good. You do want to have it monitored, though, though, because if vitamin D gets too high, there is some evidence that it's clinically correlated um, with some types of cancer. So you do want to be careful. You know, everyone says, oh, you can take all these vitamins and you'll just pee them out. But the reality is there there are some side effects if you take, you know, if your levels get too high. Yeah, that's a really good advice. Just like with everything, too much of anything is not a good thing. And some of the vitamins like vitamin D, as you mentioned, are fat soluble, aren't they? So they're going to stick around for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And which is why we don't even have to take them every day. Some people just take them once a week, but so much um, information that I think this is why, and I agree with you, everybody should have a functional medicine doctor where they can sit down and talk to you for an hour or more about exactly what they need because there's not a cookie cutter answer for each person. No, no. I mean, I would say most people are low on vitamin D. Most people are not getting enough omegas. Um, and the people that do have perfect omega levels, unfortunately, ends up with high mercury levels because chances are they're eating, eating a lot, a lot of fish. Of yeah. Fish. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, mercury is a problem in fish, especially if you eat things like tuna. But yeah, omegas, vitamin D, um, I don't really ever think there's a harm to taking a multivitamin, especially if you're not eating seasonally. I think that's a really good basic. But those three are probably my basics. I think, you know, with regard to everything else, like you said, it's really important to have somebody measuring what's going on in your body to figure out exactly what your body needs. Because it's also a waste of money, right, to take something that you don't need or that is potentially harmful. It creates really expensive urine and then... Where does that go? Back into the environment and in different ways. So uh, such a fascinating conversation. You know, I've tried this myself, the detox program. I can't recommend it more highly for anyone who's not feeling like we're functioning optimally. And that's pretty much every human that I have met in our age group. (laughs) Especially now, right? (laughs) So uh, hormone optimization is awesome. Obviously, I can help you with that too. And then just looking at all of these toxins in our system, I think it's amazing what a difference you can make in people's lives. So we'll put the links in the uh, information below about how to reach Dr. Latib at Sydenham Clinic in Houston. And thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. We could talk for hours. I think I'm going to have to have you come back and talk about some of these other topics because um, they're just fascinating and they affect every single one of us. Oh yeah, I would love to. This has been so fun. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. And I will definitely invite you back soon so we can talk some more. Yay, I'm excited.